0: Just wanted to bring your attention to a couple of things that are going on in our life together. Uh, First of all, last Tuesday night, we had the first of our um, Christianity Explored evenings down at the bowling club, uh, and it was a wonderful evening. Uh, You might have seen the photo I took. It was Christianity Explored in one room and Crime Explored in the other room, (laughs) the Crime Forum. Uh, The police were in there, if you're wondering what that forum was. Uh, The police were in there. So it was a wonderful night, a a good meal. Uh, a good, good conversation, very relaxed. Uh, they really, uh, I think this is one of the easiest opportunities uh, to, for you to invite uh, your your non-Christian, your not-yet-Christian friends and family along to think about for the first time uh, the message of Jesus. Uh, it is on, again, this Tuesday, and you can come this week, even if you missed last week. Um, and I think, I think it would be wonderful if you just take this opportunity over the next couple of days to invite somebody who you might... Uh, see at work or anything like that it's a it really is a very relaxed evening uh, where we have a meal um, a short video and then a relaxed informal discussion where no one really feels put on the spot or anything like that uh, so i encourage you um, to get along to that if you're able to do we have a slide there for that i think maybe not next one no there it is <laughs> um, and so you can go to that website if you'd like to have more information bit.do christianity explored Also, on the long weekend, uh, we're going to have the registration details out next week uh, for the Marriage Enrichment Weekend. Uh, That will be uh, having a kids' program that will be running across the Sunday and the Monday. I encourage everyone uh, who's married uh, to to think about how they can carve out time to be at that. That'll be the Sunday afternoon and the Monday of the long weekend. That would be a wonderful wonderful opportunity. All right, why don't I pray for us again as we get into uh, this passage uh, from God's Word. Father, we pray now that as we come to consider this part of your word, that you'll be giving us attentive hearts and minds, and you'll be giving us a humility that is ready for you to do work in our lives. Amen. Well, a few weeks ago, we looked at the story of the two lost sons and the lost coin and the lost sheep, the lost sheep, Uh, and... You might remember uh, that we were I kind of referenced the hymn Amazing Grace and what it means to uh, sing the words, I once was lost but now I'm found. Well, today I'd like to look at another lyric of that famous hymn by the former slave trader John Newton. Uh, It's the opening two lines of the song. But what I'd like us to do uh, as we get into it, I want you to think, I'm going to read out those lyrics in a moment, but I want you to think, What comes to mind when you hear those opening two words, two lines, trying to remove the melody for a moment and even remove the idea of it being read as poetry, okay? I'm going to read out those opening two lines of the famous hymn Amazing Grace. What what comes to mind when you kind of take the melody bit away and the poetry bit away? What do you notice? Okay, here's here's how it reads. Amazing grace... How sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. What did you notice when you heard it kind of separate from the rhythms that we normally sing it in? Perhaps you got a fresh sense of what was going on in the author's mind. He not only calls grace amazing... But interesting, after he says the word, amazing grace, it's kind of like he has to have this little pause, a pause in his train of thought to savor the moment, doesn't he? Amazing grace, it's like, before I go any further, how sweet the sound. <laughs> and then he goes on, after savoring the sweetness of that concept, amazing grace, he then goes on and candidly and unashamedly describes himself as a wretch. He was a wretch. Do you think you could... Do you think of grace as something you could honestly and with conviction uh, describe as amazing? So when you think of the idea of grace and God's grace, do you think of it as amazing? Do you think you could, uh, with honesty and conviction, uh, describe Your life before being saved by grace as being a wretch? I wonder what would be the evidence of somebody walking in off the street as we, if we just sing the words, amazing grace, what would be the evidence that we believe those words, that we really think grace is amazing, and we really believe that life without that grace means that we're a wretch? Uh, There's a famous quote from the German uh, philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, and he is very cutting. You might have heard it before. He famously says, I might believe in the Redeemer if his followers looked more redeemed. It's cutting, isn't it? Now, it is true. um, There is a sense sometimes that as Christians... As a church, we don't often live like we believe what we say we believe. Uh, perhaps, if you've been a Christian for a while, you might have seen other churches around the country, around the world, scratched your head and said, "Oh, these guys really worship God. They really look like they're amazed by God. Why can't our church be more like that? Like, why can't we just be, you know, just just jumping for joy?" Or well, I'm not sure if you're pleased to know, maybe you are, but today we're not going to do a checklist comparing our church to all the other churches around the world, but far more important for us today is to turn to God's word, be shaped by God's word, and if you've just joined us, we're in the middle of this teaching series in Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, and this letter is a letter that is written, and this is really important, to Christians. And in part, he wants Christians to praise God more and more, be in awe of God more and more. Specifically, what he has done and what he's continuing to do in this thing that we call church, this assembly of those people who come to praise and trust Jesus. And what we're doing this morning is one example of many assemblies, many churches around the world. And what he wants his church to do Our church to do is to marvel at the power of God's work in our lives and what God is doing. Now, it is important, as I mentioned, to note that this letter is written to Christians, to those who have already uh, given their life to Christ, to those who have already asked for forgiveness, those who have already turned to follow uh, Jesus as Lord and not the ways of the world. It's, It's important, actually, to acknowledge this because sometimes... Certain truths can only be fully appreciated, maybe naturally more appreciated in hindsight or after the events. Perhaps, you know, you might see, and I don't know, imagine you see your child playing in the ocean and you see a shark swimming around them. You could shout out, you know, hey, there's a shark there. You're going to be eaten alive. You're going to have your limbs ripped off. If you don't, quick, get out of the, get into the boat. I'm going to take you to the shore. Or you might say, you're in danger. Come on. Now before uh, we become Christians, we respond to the good news of Jesus, God's rescue plan and salvation in Jesus. And sometimes that can mean, well I think it's always true, we've only accepted a little bit of the information, we've only accepted a little bit, We, we know that we need to be rescued, we know that Jesus is Lord, we know that we need to turn back, but what we have in this letter to the Ephesians is written to Christians, to those who have been redeemed, for them to look back, to help them get a fuller sense of what has really gone on. Paul begins in this chapter, chapter 2, by getting real with how bad things really were before we were saved. In verse 1 and 2, he describes us as dead in our transgressions and sins, in the ways that we, in, in which you used to live or the ways you used to walk. He's not saying that we're as good as dead. He's saying that we are dead. Now, obviously, he's not talking physically dead. What's he talking about? He's talking about spiritually. Our whole being, our whole self, is spiritually lifeless. And why is that? What are the reasons that we see in the passage? We're given at least three reasons. We were following the ways of the world. We were following the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit that is working the disobedient. In verse 3, we were following the cravings of our flesh, its desires and thoughts. Now, if we had more time, we would break down each of those and uh, see what each of these uh, descriptions mean. But uh, because it's Mother's Day, we might move on, but I'm not sure if we... Not because it's Mother's Day, but because we've got other things we've got to have to look at. But these three descriptions, I would say, are not operating completely independently of each other. So in our culture... Uh, we might, many of us might be suspicious of demonic spiritual forces. We might scoff at people who who talk about that kind of side of things. We might rather have a much higher regard for our own personal autonomy. And we, we might laugh at people who talk about the ruler of the kingdom of the air. But if you go through uh, the church in Mignetti, uh as we do, uh, we, we try to do uh, regularly... Uh, We have a partnership with the church up there, and one of the things they teach us when we're up there and they help us is to appreciate what the Bible teaches uh, And uh, is that there is an unseen realm. There is a force at work in our world that is not working towards the good. And Paul describes everybody without Jesus following the ways of this world under this ruler of the kingdom of the air as being dead because they're enslaved to these masters often referred to as the world, the devil and the flesh you remember that video game Lemmings does anyone remember the game Lemmings who was addicted to the game Lemmings in the 90s Andrew Leg? yeah, okay alright <laughs> I just assumed as much, okay now I clarify this with Leggy this morning um, now uh, I had to cast my mind that Lemmings was a game where you had to kind of uh, navigate these little lemmings, creatures, uh, uh, out of harm's way. Uh, they're kind of on autopilot. Unless you actually direct them, they're gonna, they could walk off a cliff. They could just, you know, and the, the idea is to take them. They're kind of just on this autopilot without a mind of their own, without a brain. they just kind of, do, they're just, just sit and forget. Now... This passage, the descriptions uh, following the ways of this world, the rule of the kingdom of the air, gratifying the desires of the, the flesh, It's in a way, it's kind of Paul's kind of saying, we're a bit like the lemmings that are just... It, we don't know we're enslaved, but we're just enslaved by on autopilot, this kind of cosmic autopilot waiting to fall off a cliff. And our passage goes further saying, without Christ... We're not just dead, but and here's here's what I didn't plan to be preaching on Mother's Day, but we were by nature objects or deserving of God's wrath. Verse 3. Now, wrath is one of those words we probably need to spend a couple of moments clarifying before we move on. When the Bible talks about God's wrath, it's not referring to God's temper tantrums. It's not talking about God flying off the handle, like losing his cool or having a hissy fit. In fact, when the Bible talks about God's wrath, it refers to it as an essential characteristic, a requirement for God also to be a God of justice. So everybody who believes in God or some kind of personal God rather than some just force, but anyone who believes in some kind of personal force, I believe, has some line that they have drawn where they want God to act for the sake of justice. Isn't that right? Whether it's the, the Jeffrey Epsteins or the Jimmy Savills of the world kind of dying before they've really faced, you know, the, um, the, you know, the, the, the full force of the law or the cruel dictators who seem to get away with horrific crimes... I think we all have a sense that if God's there for God not to bring justice to certain people, well, that would mean that God is a God who really is either powerless or doesn't really care about good and evil. And what we learn in this passage is there is a line that God draws. <laughs> Where transgressions deserve his intervention, his wrath. And that line actually includes everyone in the world. Hang on a second. <laughs> well, that's, that's not where I would draw it, I'll draw it here. See, everyone in this world is not just a programmed lem- lemming who kind of is morally neutral, but also defiant on autopilot against God, by nature, choosing to walk away from the way that we have been made. Put themselves at the center of it all. Now, that's going to raise a number of questions for you, and those questions are raised in the Bible itself. Please come and chat to me afterwards. You might be the the questions of, uh, well, if we didn't have a choice, where is God's justice? Now, there are a whole bunch of those kind of questions, but today, what we're looking at is really what we were. Remember, he's speaking. This is not the way that Paul is going out and evangelizing the nations. He's speaking to the Christians to look back on what has happened. He's not conv- trying to convince them to step over the line and give their life to Christ. He's saying, "This is what's gone on. This is what you were." I um, I have to have three wisdom teeth out soon. Anyone had wisdom teeth out? Keep your hands up if it's fun. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Jason. You're right, okay. Now, I've been told I've got to decide whether I have a general anesthetic or a local. Um, hands up for local. yeah General? I might not. Be- oh, yeah, try. Uh, now, I've been told that local perhaps is better because under a general, the surgeons can kind of hack away at your teeth. <laughs> um, stitch you up. They don't really... And, yeah, you can take as long as they want. And they have, you know, have no idea what they've been really up to. You sort of wake up, but it's all kind of happened. And if you're under a local because you're kind of awake, they kind of have to be a bit more careful and um, not muck around as much. Reminds me of that Seinfeld episode where he has all the happy gas and all that stuff. But no... As Christians, when we think about looking back on what God has done, so there's there's a sense in which when we become Christians, a whole bunch of stuff has happened that we weren't aware of. But we're not just told that God just sort of hacked away and just got us over the line. We're being told all this stuff that God has done, like when he's redeemed us, when he's brought us, he's made us alive, we're being told not to make us feel guilty. We're being told all this stuff that God has been doing while we have been kind of under, <laughs> in a way, so that we are driven to praise and worship God more and more. So we can sing amazing grace and mean it and pause and say, that's a sweet sound. That's a really sweet sound. We see here, God wants us to know his character. We've been told this so that we'll know what, how deep God's love is for us. I, I had a quote from a friend of mine on Instagram, who's not a Christian recently, and it was one of those quotes that sound lovely on the surface. Got lots of likes from Christians and non-Christians alike. it. said, the definition of love is the absence of judgment. Like, 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 you know. Sounds lovely. A Dalai Lama quote, apparently. And we can, of course, agree with the sentiment, can't we? (laughs) Part of the way that Christians are to love others is we don't stand in judgment over them, of course. We don't see ourselves as inherently morally superior or anything like that. But that quote from the Dalai Lama does not come anywhere close to the description of love that we see in this passage. Because love without a sense of justice... And a commitment to justice is actually not real love at all. You wouldn't—the definition of of love is the abs, absence of judgment for Harvey Weinstein. I think we all know that's not the definition of love. Love without a sense of justice is not real love. Now, one of the big questions that we're going to be looking at over the weeks and one of the big questions that the New Testament answers, particularly the book of, the letter of Romans particularly, is how can God be rich in mercy and deeply loving, but also committed to his justice? We see that God's wrath in this passage it doesn't flow out of some dark malicious side of God's character it comes from his own commitment to his honor to his justice now that's a description of the past where we've been where we were and i think that the more we believe and are convinced by these words this description the more comfortable we'll be able to sing with our hearts, not just with our lips, the words that saved a wretch like me. A wretch not in terms of low self-esteem, a wretch not in terms of how we compare ourselves to others, or a wretch not in terms of how we even compare ourselves to our own expectations, a wretch in regards to how we measure up before God. That's the past. Remember, that's the past. This is speaking to Christians. If you're here and you're not a believer, you're not a Christian... Uh, Please see, these are heavy things. But Please chat to me afterwards. Come along to Christianity Explored on on Tuesday night and we'll be moving at a pace that hopefully will be really helpful for where you're at in life. But that is the past for Christians. What's changed? Verse 4, the beautiful description we've just touched on it. What has God done? Verse 4, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now, interestingly enough, if thinking about the idea of God's wrath uh, is kind of confrontational for you, I think the longer we look at it, the concept of grace might even be more confrontational. I think we've got a great difficulty with grace. Uh, (laughs) Uh, even at the Christianity Explored, you know, you you know, the the meal was being covered for certain guests and uh, the church music to say, oh, that's right, and they go, no, 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 I must pay, I must pay, you know that experience, you're fighting over the bill. Now, it's sometimes because of a generosity, but also sometimes because I don't want to walk away with somebody, I have to owe somebody something. (laughs) You know, there's a sense in which if someone offers you grace you make yourself kind of vulnerable to that person, doesn't it? The idea of grace, you know, we naturally want to say, if I can somehow pay it back, if I can somehow convince God or other people that I've earned it, it gives me some rights. You know, you get what you pay for, and if I haven't paid anything, then I'm not going to get anything. I can't kind of complain. I'm completely at the other person's mercy. And it's interesting, I was talking to someone at Christianity Explore discussion, it was a wonderful discussion, and we're talking about that exact question. Exact question. How does grace fit in? Where where does the cross fit? Why are Christians so obsessed by the cross? And it was great, we could say, we're going to be doing that in a few weeks' time. But we struggle with grace. As Christians, I think the other thing we struggle with is, and this is even more possibly more abstract. I find it very hard to get my head around this. I think grace, we can kind of relate to the idea in a, in a worldly sense, when we don't want gifts given to us and we find all that. But this one is, a, is, a, is, <laughs> is an interesting one because I think we really struggle with this. But I think the whole point of Ephesians is to get our heads around this. Uh, a lyric in a song that I was involved in writing with a number of different people a number of years ago, we sang it earlier, that song Alive... Uh, we've been made alive, we now live with the crucified, we're seated in the heavens with him now. Now at Christchurch, uh, when I was working over there with the team and we are involved in writing that song, we had these little comment cards like, where people could write a comment or like you know, if you were new you could write a question or something like that, but um, we took them away after a while because they just became whinge cards, you know, <laughs> people just tried, so we just sort of censored that, you know. Craig Donnelly's laughing. He knows what I'm talking about. He had to read a few of them. Yeah, that's right. But one of the things that frequently came up was people said, what do you mean we're seated in the heavens with him now? We're not seated in the heavens with him now. Why are we singing this? This is heresy. We will be seated in the heavens with him then, or something like that. And they almost just saying, well, we're just making this lyric up because it's poetic or something. We didn't really... But no, this is what this passage is teaching. We need to remember what, what are the heavens? So the heavens aren't the place you go when you die. you heaven, hell. The heavens is where God is doing his work of eternity. It's where Christ is now. We are united with Christ spiritually, and so we are spiritually in the heavenly realms now. Now, why that's so important is because the heavenly realms are on about the things of eternity. Why it's so important is because our whole five senses, I've forgotten how many we've got, we don't have a spiritual sense, do we? We don't, we're, you know, they're all geared towards the present. Everything about our senses tells us, no, 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 you're, you're here now. Your body is decaying. You need to have this drink. You need to fulfill this desire. You need to fulfill that desire. And, 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 and Paul is saying it pains over and over again. No, no, you are seated in the heavens now. Let me tell you why. What happened to Christ? He died. What happens to those who trust in Jesus? They die with him. They rise with him. And I was at Scripture um, last two weeks ago, and, I was, and, and one, of the, one of the kids said, and you know what happened to Jesus after he died and came back to life? Where, where did he die? He goes, he, he, he never died. What do you mean he's alive now? I said, "Yeah, where is he? He's in the heavens. He's with God. And he's with his father." And you see this kind of—it's <laughs> kind of cool, having a jaw-dropping moment. But they genuinely thought—these are your six kids—that you know Jesus died and rose, died, rose, rose again to sort of prove a point, and then he died again. But no, he didn't. <laughs> he's reigning. He promises to return, and we are seated with him. It's what he's done he isn't just sort of taken us out of our deadness our sort of lemming-like life <laughs> he's rescued us and raised us now why has he done it why has he done it what do you see in this passage what are the reasons why God has done it he's done it to build a new humanity A new people, a church, a gathering, not a church in the religious sense, but a new gathering that reflects his character. And grace is the key to this new humanity. Grace is the key. Why? Because in this new humanity that is saved by grace, it excludes boasting. Now, you might think that's a bit of a random thing for God to be... You know, trying to exclude boasting. Okay, there's a lot of things you could exclude. Boasting is not just the person wandering around boasting about all the great things they've done. Boasting is projecting the fact that we think of ourselves as mini-gods, mini-authors of our own destiny. When we exclude boasting because of grace, we have a truly other-person-centred community a community that worships God's son. We see that God has, we are God's handiwork, verse 10. We've been made alive in Christ for God's purposes. Now, here we go, to do good works. To do good works. And next week, we are going to find out what those good works are. They might involve the things that we might think of as good works, but there's actually a really uh, a surprise what those good works are. But we have been saved from being dead by this wonderful grace raised up to be a new people, a new humanity where there's no place for boasting because God has done it all for us and we've been saved for a purpose and we're going to find out what that purpose is next week in terms of the, the detail of it. But I want us to finish just coming back to those words. I'm going to invite Leggy up now just to, um, to lead us. We can't sing along with it, uh, but he's going to sing uh, the hymn Amazing Grace for us. Uh, you can hum along, I guess, under your masks, but no more. <laughs> I'm just going to read that opening line one more time, kind of imagining it without the melody, without the poetry. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but sometimes it just helps to see the fresh. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Do we share the conviction of John Newton, who wrote that, the former slave trader? amazing grace so as leggy um sings that why don't you just take a moment to reflect on that wonderful truth mm.